Hello and welcome to another episode of the Sure Skills Learn to Grow podcast. My latest guest on the show is Dr. Ruth Gotian, who is the Chief Learning Officer at Wild Cornell Medicine and Assistant Professor of Education Anesthesiology. She's also the former Assistant Dean of Mentoring and Executive Director of the Mentoring Academy at Wild Cornell. Ruth is also a frequent contributor to Forbes and Psychology Today. And one of the coolest things that she gets to do is she interviews Nobel laureates, professional athletes, and other elite high achievers, and tries to understand what they do differently that allows them to achieve at such a high level. Ruth has taken the wisdom from those conversations and distilled it into a new book titled The Success Factor, Developing the Mindset and Skill Set for Peak Business Performance. And that book is available for pre-order, and I will add a link in the show notes to that. In this conversation, Ruth shares some of that wisdom, and we dive into some practical suggestions for how to be a more effective and efficient learner. And I think there are definitely things you can take away right now and apply as you learn and grow personally and professionally. We discuss a whole range of things, including how elite high achievers define success. We discuss some practical frameworks for learning absolutely anything, and also why L&D functions are becoming increasingly like mentors. I think you'll find some great nuggets in this one. Here is Dr. Ruth Gautier. Ruth, welcome. Thank you for uh, braving the winter storm. Thank you so much. This is going to be awesome. This is always great to warm up any day. Can you give us a sense actually where where you are right now and and how things are for you at the moment professionally? Well, first of all, I am in snowy New York. (laughs) We're having yet another storm. We're wondering where we're going to start putting all of this snow. (laughs) Professionally, I am the Chief Learning Officer in Anesthesiology at Wild Cornell Medicine, helping our healthcare heroes succeed even more. And I also do a lot of the mentoring and coaching, and I research extreme high achievers such as Nobel laureates and astronauts and Olympic champions. And I do a lot of talking such as this and lecturing and keynotes and workshops and teaching. And I do a lot of writing, both academic writing because I have a faculty appointment. But I also try to reach lay audiences as well. So I write for the academic journals and I also write for the lay journals such as Harvard Business Review. And I have a column both in Forbes and Psychology Today. So a lot of good stuff. A lot of good stuff. And you are Stephen King-esque in your, uh, <laughs> your, your, your prolific publishing. Uh, you certainly have a lot of information out there and it's great stuff oh. you know anytime you say Nobel laureate and Olympic athletes you know everybody's ears perk up when we think oh what are what do they do like how do they go about <laughs> their day and you get to actually have those conversations and one of the things I was thinking about is before you optimize success you kind of have to define it yeah I would imagine success for Nobel laureates uh, looks different from success for Olympic athletes right so how do you work with these guys and, and define success in such widely different areas and arenas? It's really about making an impact. So at the end of the day, have you made an impact? Have you made an impact that other people either have noticed or have not yet noticed, but your work really has such a great impact that eventually people are going to notice whether or not you want a prize for it or not is irrelevant. 
What is most important is that you have made that impact and you're paying it forward. So that's the other key pieces. You have to also pay it forward. Now, how you get about to the success is a little bit different and the definition of success varies based on who you ask, both in terms of their rank and in terms of their gender and ethnicity, but that's a whole other separate conversation. But at the end of the day, it is about making an impact and paying it forward. Not all of them have awards. James Clear wrote a great book called Atomic Habits. Anyway, in this book, uh, James Clear talks about the, the fact that there's a lag between when we do something and when we actually see the results. Yeah. So if you think about it, there's a lag between physical exercise and your body actually changing shape, right? There's a lag yeah. between your, your saving habits and your bank accounts actually seeing the, the benefits of that, right, long term. <laughs> I think this idea of a lag is interesting because learning is a slow process, right? And it's tricky. Yeah. We don't just pick something up, read it, learn it, and then we know it, right? It takes right. time to kind of bed that in. And there's all sorts of other things around that, our, our sleeping habits, you know, how well we're taking care of ourselves, how often we're reinforcing it. I guess my question here is, if learning is a slow process, how do we encourage people through the early phases that can be challenging? Ah, I love that one. So you're talking to somebody who got their doctorate later in life. I started it at 43. Uh -huh. And it's a long, isolating practice. And this is something that I have actually, I, I think I have mastered and I have kept doing it long after I finished my degree because it worked so well. Everything, every small win got rewarded. Every small win. What does that mean? When I got my doctorate, I had to read 100 pages per week per class on top of working full time and raising a family. So if I finished reading that, I rewarded myself. I got a manicure. Didn't have to be big, right? Something very small. When I had to um, write my dissertation, you don't write it one chapter at a time. You write it one section of one chapter at a time. Every mm. time I finished, I would reward myself with something very small, very, very small, but something that made me feel human, something that would make me sit a little bit taller, right? And all of those things worked. It really worked because I could see how it builds and builds and builds and builds. I had it right in front of me. Mm -hmm. So it was fantastic. Now, I always feel that every time you learn something, you need to produce something with it. Huh. So and when you produce something with it, you have to give it multiple lives. So if I am teaching something, if I am teaching a concept about something, I'm giving a talk about it, I'm running a workshop about it, I'm writing an article about it, I have to give it multiple lives. And that really shows that the work really has meant something. So I think if you reward yourself and you give that work by passing it forward in different ways, I think that's really helpful and it will have such an impact. And that will help you do what the successful people do of having it have an impact and moving it forward because you always want to pay it forward. You've taken a lot of time to think about the process of learning and to think about your yeah. practical approach to learning. And I'm fascinated yeah. by this, right? And bear with me because this might be a slightly long-winded question. <laughs> okay. So you know the whole conscious competence model? Have you heard mm -hmm. that, or seen that? So we go from being unconsciously incompetent at, at, at things, right, where we don't know we're poor at certain things. Yeah. 
we move then, the first step is to move into conscious incompetence where we're aware of the things that we need to work on or yeah. improvement. Then we yeah. move into conscious competence where we deliberately practice something. We deliberately work at it to get better at it, right? But it's conscious. We have to kind of deliberately pay attention to it. And then finally, we move to that last phase, which is unconscious competence, where we've done something so often it becomes wired. Yeah, muscle memory. There's a couple of things about that that's really interesting to me. First, that the first step is always awareness, right? Moving mm-hmm. from unconscious incompetence to conscious incompetence. Just yeah. realize it. And it takes a second, right? And sometimes you do it yourself. Sometimes you need a mentor to do it for you, right? Well, yeah. So let's talk about that for a second. Okay. Let's put a pin in that, right? So yeah. how do you, we don't know what we don't know. Yeah. So how to become, you know, I don't want to sit there like a bump on a log. I want to have an impact in the world. So I need to be aware of what I don't know. So how do I become aware of what I don't know? So as you said, there's a lot of ways to do that. And I think it's important to really talk about that a little bit because that can open up a whole new line of inquiry that can open up a whole new line of motivation. You can talk to people, right? I always feel that people learn by, and it's not just me, this is also the work of David Kolb. You can learn by trying things out, experiential learning. You can learn by reading. You can learn by uh, watching videos. You can learn by hearing other people. But just because you learn something doesn't mean you want to necessarily do it, right? So how do you know that you're good at something and you want to try things out? So I, you know, I, I share this story. I write a lot now, right? But I didn't used to be that way. This is a fairly recent thing. So my grandmother and I were very, very close growing up. We were grandmother, granddaughter, but we were more like sisters or best friends. Mm -hmm. And she always said I was a good writer, but I didn't like writing. Mm. I didn't enjoy it. And, you know, I, I went to college, I went to grad school, I got my doctorate and I'm very proud of the fact that I got through doctor um, got through my doctorate without having to take a single multiple choice exam because I know that's my weakness. So I always looked for classes where I had to write papers instead of taking multiple choice exams. And then my doctoral advisor said to me, "You are a really good writer. Now, when you get your doctorate, you have to churn out these, you know, five page papers every weekend." So I was able to write quickly but I was always writing under somebody else's rules. Hmm. And that's what was so frustrating to me. So people told me I wrote well, but I never enjoyed it. But then I had the opportunity to write under my own rules, what I enjoy writing about. And whoa, that was a whole new world. So what it took was, people telling me you're a good writer, people giving me the opportunity to try something out and my being less afraid of failing than I am of trying, which is something I learned from the high achievers. So I was aware that I could try And you know, what's the worst that would happen? If it really sucked, what's the worst that would happen? Mm -hmm. I never have to do it again. Mm -hmm. Right? So, 
it was worth taking that calculated risk, which is something that high achievers do. And I learned from them. So I listened to the people around me. I listened to how other people were writing. And I obviously I read a lot, as I mentioned, and I never saw the articles that I was really interested in reading. And I felt that I had the words to do that. And then I had the platform to do it. Mm -hmm. It's also a perfect example of the the contrast between intrinsic and extrinsic motivation, right? So you had the extrinsic motivation. You just, when you developed the intrinsic, it went to a whole new level. Exactly. Exactly. So I can now write first drafts of some of these articles with my morning coffee. Because once the idea is in the head, it just, I cannot type fast enough. But when I was in school, I was always staring at a blank screen. Because I'm an extrovert. I cannot reflect on command. It just doesn't work. So I would be staring at a black, a blank screen and get so frustrated, so frustrated. Now, I realize I have to think it in my head first, and then out it comes. That's becoming aware, staring at a blank yeah. screen and feeling frustrated. Frustration is an awareness that you're struggling yes. with something. And then when you investigate into then what is the frustration? Is it because I'm doing the wrong thing? Is it because I'm doing the thing I'm doing poorly? <laughs> is mm-hmm. it, you know, so, and, and those are the causes for investigation. But until yeah. we become deliberate about the learning process, yeah. we miss those opportunities to find insights into what we're passionate about and what we want to explore and learn and grow in, right? Absolutely. And, and, and not only do you need to find what it is you're, you're excited about the next step is to figure out what time of the day works best for you and then leverage that so i am a morning person i wake up very early in the morning i can get more done by 9 a.m than most people get done all day by one two three o'clock don't ask me to write anything yeah you'll get as much yeah it, it really won't won't work out well. So what I do is I, as much as possible, structure my calendar so that in the morning, I could do because I'm a morning person, the more cognitive, uh, cognitive heavy tasks, writing, editing, budgets, things like that. That's for the morning, Mm -hmm. the afternoon, where I am more tired and slower and I feel my brain is not as sharp. That's when I'll do more of the rote tasks. I will respond to emails. I will jump on zoom calls. Um, I will do things like that, that really don't require too much heavy thinking and then save, say, you know, now there are some people who are night owls, so they just flip it and do it at night, but you have to learn for yourself what works best for you. Adult learning now in the workplace, we have to be always learning on the job, right? We're changing roles. We're changing careers. We're changing industries. We have to be adaptive thinkers, right? We have to take responsibility for how we learn. So is that something that that you're seeing a lot more of now in in terms of today's workplace? Absolutely. And and I think the idea of these blanket L&D programs are just not going to work anymore because everyone has very different stressors. And I think the pandemic has really put a spotlight on that. So the stressors you have and the stressors I have could be very different, even if we're working in the same organization. 
in the same department because I could have young children. You could have elderly parents. It could be very different. I might have to shovel my driveway and you might have, you know, whatever it is, college tuitions to pay for, for your kids, whatever it is, the stressors are very different. And the pandemic has really put the spotlight on it. So I think we need to be able to be more nimble in the learning and the development opportunities that we're creating and create them in different platforms. So that's one of the other things that you might be somebody who just wants to read articles about it. I might be somebody who wants to watch videos because I need to be able to see what you're talking about. I can't imagine it in my head. But yet there could be a third person who says, forget the manual. I just want to try it out. Mm-hmm. And that's how they're going to learn. So we need to realize that people are really learning differently and we need to offer different platforms for them to be able to consume that knowledge. They need to be able to talk to subject matter experts. They need to, you know, all of these different things just so that they can get the information because the way you learn is very different from the way I learn and the way you retain information can be very different from the way I retain information. Doesn't mean we're not going to be successful. We are both going to be extremely successful, but how we go about it is going to be different. It sounds like you're saying the role of high-functioning L&D departments is to become more like mentors. A hundred percent. And you, you just said, you know, we're not cookie cutter. So why should our learning be cookie cutter? Mm-hmm. Right? We know that the sage on the stage doesn't work. Yeah. We know that when someone lectures to us, it's actually called banking theory, that if there's a lecturer who's throwing out knowledge at us to deposit in our brain, but we don't know which bank accounts to put it in, which file drawers to put in, yeah, we have a lot of knowledge, but it makes no sense to us. Mm-hmm. We don't know what to draw upon. So we need people who can really guide us and help us focus and organize all this information so that we can retain it. And people have to do it in different ways. Some people need those visual cues, those auditory cues. Some people might just need to talk it out. So you need to figure out what works for yourself. You focus heavily. You've, you've been, uh, you were the assistant dean of mentoring. You were the executive director of the Mentoring Academy. What yeah. is it that makes a, a great mentor? So first, let me start with why bother having a mentor, right? It's real sexy now. Um, So there's a lot of research on this. And it has shown that those who are mentored out-earn, out-perform, and out-succeed those who don't. And there's research that shows that two-thirds of people know they should have a mentor, but only one-third of people actually have one. Mm -hmm. So the mentor is there to help guide you. They can um, push you out of your comfort zone. They can introduce you to people. They can teach you things. All of that is great. But if you're looking for the perfect mentor, I'm sad to say you're never going to find one because mentors are human and we're human and we're not perfect and they're not perfect. We all have our biases. We all have our blinders. But if you want to overcome that, The way to do that is not to have one mentor. Don't limit yourself. Get a whole team of mentors to help you. You get your own board of directors. 
Now, don't worry if they don't know each other. Don't You don't have to get them all on a Zoom together. You just need people with different perspectives who can really help guide you. So I recommend getting people from inside your organization, outside your organization, in your industry, outside your industry, people who are senior to you, people who are junior to you, your peers. There's a whole lot of people who can be on your mentoring team. And I, I have a resource on my website that can talk you through those phases of how to build your own mentoring team that will help you become more successful. So if you go to ruthgotian.com slash mentoring team as one word, mm-hmm. you'll see the you'll see the resource and the worksheet right there and it'll talk you who should be on your mentoring team. Because you can do that today. Today you can actually start working on getting people to be on your mentoring team. What do you think stops people from doing that? Is it, is it an awareness thing? Is it a kind of shyness thing? Is it, what, is it no. the fact that we're all remote and it's harder, just like it's harder no. to network right now? What is it? No, I actually think it's easier to network. I think it's easier to find a mentor. I think people have the perception of perfection. Huh. And I think that is what is stopping them from finding the perfect mentor. They're looking for someone who has it all. But I hate to break it to you, nobody has it all because no one has your career under your circumstances. You're your own person. You have your own cognitive load, your own physical load, your own social load, your own things that you're carrying with you. And you have your own career. They can advise you based on their own experiences, but it's an experience of one. And you have something different. And that's why that mentoring team is so important. So if you are looking for that perfect mentor, you're going to be looking for the rest of your life because that person simply does not exist. So you just overcome that by getting a team. It's also true that mentor-mentee relationships, much like teacher-student relationships, are reciprocal. Hi, yes. (laughs) I mean, I just know from teaching, I guarantee I learned way more from the kids I taught than they ever learned from me. The same is often true of mentor-mentee relationships, where if it's a healthy relationship, there's a there's yeah. a really positive and productive back and forth there. That's right. And when it's so great and so wonderful, it just becomes so fluid that you don't know who the mentor is and who the mentee. If you saw the two of them talking, you wouldn't know. Because the more contemporary view of a mentor is not that it has to be somebody older. It could be somebody younger than you as well. So our whole definition of mentorship and what it should look like has completely flipped. Sure, it could be someone senior, but it could also be your peer and it could also be someone junior. And you can learn from anyone, absolutely anyone. Switch and focus then kind of back to something we talked about a few minutes ago. Uh, You know, we mentioned adult learning and the importance of adult learning. And you said, you know, adults can't learn sage on the stage style mm-hmm. and you can yeah. make the argument that no one can that it's not a very yeah. technique i agree <laughs> and you've said earlier that we need to you know we need to start emphasizing soft skills right we need to start mm-hmm. teaching these things to kids younger and younger okay. are there more diverse teaching practices now are we moving towards kind of facilitating more learning styles or is that something that still needs a lot of work i think i think that's still an area of opportunity Um, I call them power skills because I think soft skills are so hard for so many people. But the good thing about power skills is that you can learn how to do it. It just takes practice. 
-hmm. It just takes practice. Now, K through 12, you talk K through 12, you would not be in front of a classroom until somebody observed you and gave you feedback and you learned about teaching methodologies. Once you finish 12th grade and you go into any professional arena, no one teaches you how to do that. You mm -hmm. have a terminal degree, you can get up in front of a room. Mm -hmm. No one teaches you how to teach. And I think that was some of the problem that so many people had when they had to flip their classrooms during the pandemic. Nobody, they didn't know because they didn't have that. The ones who really excelled at it were probably the younger faculty members who themselves had it as students. But some of the people when they were students, some of the faculty didn't have this as students. So they didn't quite fully get behind it. So can we learn how to do it? Absolutely. Can we learn how to engage with people? Absolutely. Now, I think we can also teach this in the K through 12. I was recently interviewed two separate times by high school, um, high school students. And I thought it was fantastic that high school students were interviewed, not because totally. I knew to be interviewed, but the fact was, they were learning how to talk to other people. And I was able to say, wait a minute, before you start with the first question, you need to warm up. Mm -hmm. You need to do a warm up, right? You would never play in a basketball game without doing your warm up. Yeah. I don't even know you. Why am I going to be so forward with information? Uh -huh. Right? So that's why, I, you know, you always want to warm up with people, connect with people in some way over something because then you will have more of an authentic conversation. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, they could be talking to a brick wall. Yeah, They don't need me, right? Go look at my bio if you want to know this information. But if you want to know more than that, there, I, I need to know you. I need to be able to trust you at some level. Yeah. So it's really about talking to people and reflecting. You need to be able to reflect on your own time. Not everyone can reflect on command. But if you make a concerted effort to do it, you can. The term terminal degree is also <laughs> antithetical to, to lifelong learning, isn't it? I so agree with you. I so agree with you. You know, I have to tell you, um, I loved, 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 loved going to school later in life and getting my doctorate. One of the best decisions I ever made. I didn't love having to read 100 pages a week and you know, turn over those papers every weekend. But I loved learning. I loved learning, which is why now, whenever I give a talk, there's always a list of resources at the end, because I think anyone should continue learning. And there's so many ways to do it. You don't have to go get a degree. Mm -hmm. You don't have to go to a certificate program. You can read something and learn, read an article, read a book, LinkedIn learning. I love LinkedIn learning. I spend endless hours while doing laundry and cooking dinner, having it play in the background because there's so much you can learn. And mm -hmm. every there's a webcast, there's thousands of them a day that you can learn from mm -hmm. that they do it. Also on LinkedIn Live, I just think there's so many opportunities to learn. So, you know, that the what was called the terminal degree, I agree with you, it shouldn't be terminal. We should always be learning. When we stop learning, we stop using our brain. It is the future. And as we've said, the, those power skills 
they're not going away. Yeah. Yep. That's where we're going to hang our hats for, for years to come. And that's an exciting thing, I think. Well, listen, you interview elite high achievers, and I've gotten to take your job uh, for the day because <laughs> you are an elite high achiever yourself. And uh, I'm really impressed with all the work you're doing. And your mentees are lucky to have you as a mentor. And it was just an absolute pleasure to get to chat about something that we're both very passionate about, clearly. Thanks for letting me geek out with you. Listen, best of luck with everything you have coming down the pipeline. I hope we can stay in touch and, and maybe do this again sometime. Oh, it would be my pleasure. Thank you. All right, Ruth. Best of luck with everything. Take care. Thanks. Bye. That was Dr. Ruth Gautian. Thanks again to Ruth for her time. I love exploring the practical aspects of learning and Ruth has not only refined her own approach to learning, but is clearly helping others do the same, which I think is terrific. I have added any links referenced in the show to the notes. I am also adding the link to pre-order Ruth's new book, The Success Factor, Developing the Mindset and Skill Set for Peak Business Performance. That comes out January 25th in 2022 but you can pre-order now through the link and that will be in the show notes too. We will have more episodes coming soon. Take care and all the best. Mm-hmm.